This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, the opportunity to, in the privacy of your priesthood, in silent prayer, uh, admit or identify any sins to God the Father, the instant of which you are uh, forgiven, cleansed from all unrighteousness, restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so you can resume your spiritual advance. After a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together and study your word under the freedoms in this nation. We thank you that we have a, have a nation that uh, has such freedom to teach your word, to uh, proclaim the gospel. We thank you that despite the efforts of many enemies who seek to restrain the gospel, to remove uh, discussion of God and the Bible and truth from public discourse, that we still have this this ability. Father, we pray that you would continue to preserve this in our nation, that we may continue to have these freedoms, because once these are gone, this nation will self-destruct. Father, we pray that you would challenge us as believers, knowing that as goes the believer, so goes the nation, and that it is up to us as believers to advance in our spiritual life, that if we fail in this task, then part of the reason for a collapse of the nation is divine discipline on the believers in that nation. Father, we pray that you would continue to grant us national security in relationship to support for Israel and that we may continue to send out missionaries. Father, we pray that you would continue to provide for the needs of this congregation, the financial and physical needs, taking care of this building and other facets. We thank you for your manifold grace to us for numerous years to maintain this local church as a steadfast testimony to your grace. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the last part, last section of our study on who is Jesus. We started this back at the end of November answering the question, who is Jesus, the first part of what is technically known as Christology, dealing with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, a doctrine that is uh, distorted by many, many folks today, and there are many problems, which I've gone through again and again over the past uh, two or three months. 
these last two or three classes that we have this week and on through probably the 18th of April, we're focusing on advanced Christology because what we're going to focus on in these next three or four classes have to do with how the deity and humanity of Christ come together in one person and what the consequences and implications of that are. When you start getting into this, we'll address some historical realities in terms of how the early church sought to uh, come to understand what was revealed in the Scripture, how they struggled with the articulation of these doctrines and how they had to work diligently to realize that if you just shade the definition a little bit this way, then you have these problems. If you shade it a little that way, then you have other problems. And, of course, this is going to get us into some things we've touched on in the past, the Council of Nicaea, Council of Constantinople in 381, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, and the significance and implications of those decisions. And of course, this is stuff that isn't normally ever taught in churches. What you get is you go to grow up in some Methodist church or Roman Catholic church, or you grow up in perhaps an Episcopal church where you recite the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and you have no clue what it means, how it got there, or what the implications are. And yet, they're profound. They are doctrinal statements that were brought together and articulated in the early church to, to, as it were, distill out what the Scriptures reveal into a refined statement that reflects what the Scriptures teach. And these creeds and these beliefs were then the foundation for what became known as Western civilization. Now, there's a lot in Western civilization that didn't get impacted by Christianity, but that which made Western civilization different from all the other uh, pagan uh, systems and civilizations is this introduction of Christian truth grounded on an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And that's why I say this is advanced Christology because it'll probably turn your brain inside out once or twice, and that's a good thing. It took the early church fathers 300 years to work through this, and what you'll discover is that even though that was 2,000 years ago, they weren't dummies. What they said and what they wrote will twist your brain a little bit. But it shows that modern man, in all of his arrogance, really doesn't approach what the early church developed in terms of really wrestling with what this means. The sad thing is we live in an era of... of what I would call immediate, impatient pragmatism. What we want to know is we want to come to church and say, I want you to give me ten principles on this or five principles on that so that I can go home and put stuff into application today. Now, that's great, but it reduces almost inevitably to nothing more than than moral homilies and practical little sermons that have nothing to do with the Bible. And more than that, they don't teach you to transform the way you think about things. The way you think about politics and the way we think about politics, at least the way it was politics were thought about by the founding fathers of this country, was profoundly impacted by the implications of these early creedal statements. And we'll see how we get there eventually. Your marriage ought to change. If you understand the hypostatic union of Christ, it ought to change how you relate to a husband and wife. 
it's implicit in this doctrine. Unfortunately, the way most people teach something like this is such a dry approach that when you walk away from it, you go, well, that's nice. I understand I believe that, but so what? Why does that, how does that change what's going on today? So we have to understand all of these things related to the unique person of the universe. Now, what we have done so far is to look at the fact that in the Old Testament there were two streams of information about the person of the Messiah and that these streams converge in Jesus Christ. You have the same streams in the New Testament, but that's where the convergence occurs. The first has to do with the fact that the Messiah would be a divine Messiah. He would be fully God. He was called, Isaiah 7.14, Emmanuel, God with us. He is uh, called the eternal uh, God, the mighty God, in Isaiah uh, 9.16. In the Old Testament, he's presented as divine, but he's also presented as being a human Messiah, a truly human Messiah. He is a man. He is a human being like you are. He's a human being like I am, yet with, but without a sin nature. He's fully God and he's fully man. And this comes together historically at the virgin birth. And that's why we spent time focusing on what the Bible teaches about the virgin birth, its historicity, and its theological orthodoxy. You can't dismiss the virgin birth without doing away with the understanding of Jesus as divine. Of course, that's what modern man wants to do. That's the challenge today is that modern man rejects the deity of Christ. He was just a man like everybody else. A recent survey that I looked at this last week said that some, um, I forget the exact number, it was atrocious. It was like 30 or 40 percent of professing evangelicals thought that Jesus was just a man like the rest of us. I mean, with a sin nature. So this is an area that isn't taught, isn't understood. And people in the pew are ignorant of this, but it's foundational. You might as well throw out the Bible. Throw out your Christianity if what I am teaching isn't true. So when this comes together in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the virgin birth, a technical term was developed to describe this. In the early church, this is not a term that you will find in the Bible. But this is a term that was developed out of these early church councils, Council of Nicaea, Council of Constantinople, Council of uh, Chalcedon, and that term is the hypostatic union, and that's a term that many of you have heard and are familiar with, others of you aren't. So let's have a definition. This is foundational to everything we're going to study the next few weeks. We're going to look at the hypostatic union. We're going to look at a problem in Philippians 2 that is a central passage for what we're teaching right now, which has to do with the uh, a Greek verb there, uh, kanao, or sometimes called the kenosis problem. And then we're going to look at the impeccability of Christ. What does it mean when we say Jesus Christ is sinless? And then we have to tie all of this together to see what the impact is for us. Now, this isn't the kind of thing that you can do in one 30-minute or 45-minute message. I always remember a great story. If it's not true, it ought to be. And it certainly fits 
the character of the man involved. Many of you have heard of J. Vernon McGee. Dr. McGee was a great Bible teacher, pastor of Church of the Open Door in Los Angeles for, for many years. And in the early 70s, as I've been told by a source who was there, he was to teach in chapel. He was to preach in chapel at Dallas Seminary. Now, at seminary, you had chapel every day, and that was one of the great experiences I had. Loved being in Chafer Chapel with about, would seat about 800 men. Eight, and back in those days, we didn't have women because the purpose of the seminary was what it should have been, training men for the pastoral ministry. And it was, nothing was more glorious than to hear those 800 male voices singing hymns. I mean, it was just incredible. And so we would have chapel every day. We're required to go to chapel a certain number of times a semester, and different speakers would come in, and different pastors, well-known men, faculty members, would uh, speak for on different subjects. It's 30 minutes. Usually you had a couple of minutes of announcements, and then they would sing a hymn, and then you would have about a 20-minute message. Well, apparently things were, had been different or Dr. McGee, by the mid-70s, was probably in his 60s, I would guess. He graduated from Dallas Seminary in the early 30s. And he, uh, there's another great story there, but I'll skip that for another time. But he apparently did not find out that he only had 20 minutes until it was time for him to get up in the pulpit. Got up, he looked at the group of men, he says, Men, I just found out I only have 20 minutes to speak. You can't say anything significant about the Bible in 20 minutes, so let's close in prayer. See, we live in an era when people don't want to sit more than 20 minutes to listen to the Bible. That's why they're such superficial, shallow Christians. Is because they can't think, they can't concentrate. They don't understand, you can't get any depth in Bible teaching. You can't draw out any implications in only 20 minutes. Sometimes you can't do it in an hour. Sometimes it takes hours to develop things, which we've all seen here many times. Because the issues in life are not simple. And to teach people how to think is not an easy task. I'm not here to teach you how to live. If I teach you how to think and you're thinking biblically, then the living, the application, will take care of itself. But if you just have application, go out and do this, this, and this, and X, Y, and Z, and A, B, and C, then what you end up doing is straightening up the outside of your life, but the inside of your life hasn't changed. You're still thinking like a pagan. And that's exactly the problem in many, many churches, most churches today, is most people in the pews think in terms of human viewpoint. They think in terms of the culture around them, which the Bible calls the world system, and they are therefore conformed to the world. And the Bible says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renovation of your thought. And when people don't want to sit, and it may even be if you don't want to sit for an hour. Situations every now and then where... You need to teach for two or three hours on a subject. Everybody just sit there and let's concentrate for a while because if we split it up over three or four weeks, you're going to lose it. Usually we don't do that, but sometimes you have to do that, and people always scream. And the screamers are the ones who don't understand what it's all about. It's not about being comfortable. 
I know, those pews aren't comfortable. It's about learning how to think. And this is what my preface for the next three or four weeks is, is because this is not simple stuff. This is where we're going to move out of the category of basic Christology, understanding that Jesus is God, Jesus is man, He's joined, they're joined together in the one person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the simple definition. But we're going to go beyond that. We're going to say, so what? Why is that important? Why is it important that we believe in a trinity? You know, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I believe God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's what we believe. But why? I mean, this just isn't out there because that's what you believe as a Christian. It makes a difference in how you live your life. And if you don't understand the implications of these things, then then you're just going to be out there just kind of muddling along, which is what most Christians do. So let's get into our definition. Hypostatic union. Hypostatic union is based on the Greek word hypostasis. Hypostasis has the idea of a substantial nature, essence, actual being, or reality. So what we're talking about in the term hypostatic union is that there is a union of hypostases in Christ a union of natures, a union of essences, as it were. Now, an essence is the conglomeration, compilation, of a group of attributes that make a thing what it is. Okay? So when we talk about this hypostatic union, a union of the nature or essence of deity with the nature of man, we're talking about everything that makes God God is there. And everything that makes a human a human being is there. Now, that won't include the sin nature because that is not inherent in what it means to be a human. You know how subtle Satan is? How many times do you hear people talk about somebody and they just had some failure, some moral failure in life, or, or they got involved in um, some sort of... Uh, habit that they fell back into. They were an alcoholic or into drug abuse or something of that nature. Well, they're just human. No, they're not. That it doesn't have anything to do with it. They're a sinner. You see, sin is not what it means. It's not essential to being a human. God did not create us with a sin nature. So the essence there is what we should be saying is, well, they fail because they're a sinner. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. But it's not because you're human, technically. It's because you're a sinner. That you fail. So there is a combination of two essences, the, the deity and humanity of Christ. So in our definition, we read, the hypostatic union describes the union of two natures, divine and human. The divine nature is everything that makes up deity. All of the essence of God is sovereignty, justice, righteousness, love, eternal life, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, veracity, immutability. All of that is present and deity what makes deity deity is there and a human nature what makes a human a human is there human soul a human body human spirit we looked at that last week when we looked at the fact that the bible clearly teaches that jesus christ had all of the attributes of humanity and he demonstrated various characteristics of humanity so the hypostatic union describes the union of two natures divine and human, in the one person of Jesus Christ, so that you can say that Jesus Christ is fully God or undiminished deity 
and he is fully man, or true humanity. Not fallen humanity, but true humanity. So we have to describe how, we have to understand how these two natures fit together. How are they united? Now that has a lot of implications, which I'll be drawing out in the next few weeks. But this is, this is foundational. These natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity. Now let's explain that just a little bit. We're going to, basically the next three or four weeks is going to be a lot of explaining of this, so you'll understand it in, in more precise ways. These natures are inseparably united. That means you can't separate them. You can't go in and take them apart. And they will never be taken apart again. This is an eternal union. Jesus Christ, a million years from now, into eternity future, is still going to be fully God and fully man. The second person of the Trinity added something to his eternal divine nature that is never going to be taken away. These natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity. Without loss of separate identity, in other words, the divine nature is still the divine nature. It doesn't lose its identity, and it's not mixed into the humanity. So you come up with like, like if you were to mix uh, lemon juice and water, you get something new, don't you? You get lemonade. But this is like oil and water. They don't mix. So they, there's no mixture of the attributes, the deity, divine attributes, don't leak over into the humanity, and the human attributes don't leak over into the deity. So it's without loss or mixture of separate identity, without loss or transfer of properties or attributes. So in the first definition, they're inseparably united. The identity of each remains separate. And second, the attributes and properties remain separate. Humanity remains human. Deity remains deity. And then the third, the third clause of the de- this sentence, the union is, is personal and eternal. It is personal. It is, and we'll see that what this means is there's one person. Even though there's two natures there, there is one person. And it's not some sort of bi-personality disorder. Okay, some people think of it that way, you know, but it's two natures, not two persons. That was a problem in the early church. That was one of the early ways they tried to put this together, realize there were some problems. The union is personal. That means we have a personal Savior, and it's eternal. It's, we're never going to lose it. Conclusion, Jesus is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. That's the easy, simple definition. Jesus is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. You can use that for a definition in prep school, fifth grade, and they can probably understand that. But we're going to try to develop this in a little more detail. Now, what are some key passages? Some of these we've gone through in the past. We're not going to go through all of those, all of these, but key passages are Philippians 2, 6 through 11, which is also a key passage for the kenosis. So that's going to be our central passage the next few weeks. John 1, 1 through 14. Hebrews, or excuse me, Romans 1, 2 through 5. 
1 Timothy 3.16, Hebrews 2.14, 1 John 1, 1-3. These are central passages dealing with the hypostatic union. Well, let's start by looking at Philippians 2.5. Philippians 2.5. Let me just read through it. Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I just want to stop there. See, as much as we talk about the doctrine, we may get into some things that you think are, whoa, that's really abstract, it sounds philosophical, it sounds awfully theological. The point of all of this that Paul's dealing with is it's, it's a, it's a, he, he's on a course that is pointing to that last statement. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, this isn't just, we're not just going to take this doctrine and rip it out of the Scriptures in some sort of nice little abstract exercise and trying to think through what something means or, or historical exercise. It is designed for a purpose, and that is to teach us what real humility is all about. If you want to think about humility and you don't think about this passage, you don't understand what humility is. This is the biblical exposition of what it means to be humble. What humility is in contrast to the arrogance, which is the core orientation of your sin nature and my sin nature, and is the core orientation of the, or the core issue in the fall of Satan. And this is the contrast to it. The second person of the Trinity demonstrates for all the creatures what humility is. So if you ever want to think about humility and you divorce it from this passage and you don't understand the hypostatic union, you don't really understand humility. So we're going to try to take our understanding of humility to a, to a higher level. So Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this passage is a passage that shows up in Philippians in an interesting context. So since most of you have already turned there, I want you to just go back to the to the start, Philippians 2. Now let me review what I've done so far. First of all, let's break this down. I've got several points here. You have them down. Let's make sure you've got them as points. Point number one is a definition. Point number two had to do with the key passages. And this third point has to do with implications. Now this is a long point that will probably take the rest of the morning to develop. It is just, I'm going to try to explain, not in some sort of bullet, not in some sort of reduced sentence, but just what the implications of this are. And I guess if you were to, if I were to reduce it down to one thing, the implication of the hypostatic union is that it teaches us about sanctification. 
It teaches us about sanctification. If you want to understand sanctification, we have to understand the hypostatic union. Now, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the Christian life. It's how you grow. How do you get from being a spiritual baby to becoming a spiritual adult? How do you go through that process? How do you deal with trials and tests and tribulations in life? And it's grounded on an understanding of Jesus and his person and the relationship of deity to humanity. So the implication is central to understanding the whole concept of your spiritual life and how you're going to grow up and quit being a baby believer and grow up to being an adult believer. If you look at at, this, at the context of this passage, what we're seeing here is an emphasis on the on a key element in the process of spiritual growth. Now look at the look at the beginning point here. Paul is talking to this congregation in Philippi, and apparently there is a problem with within the congregation with some kind of of uh, conflict, some sort of division. Something has divided the congregation for whatever reason. I mean, it's not as extreme as the kind of divisiveness you had over in Corinth, but there, there's some kind of problem within the congregation. So it's a very practical exhortation here in chapter 2. Therefore, he says in verse 1, if, if, and this is a first-class condition, assuming the reality of the condition that it's true, that if and it's true that there is consolation in Christ, if and it's true that there's comfort of love, if and it's true that there's the fellowship of the Spirit, if and it's true that there's affection and mercy, and since these things are true, he gives a command, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Now this is the, the command, this is the exhortation, very practical command. Have unity in the congregation, be like-minded. Have the same love for one another. Be of one accord, of one mind. Now, that's a very practical exhortation. What we've seen with Paul is when Paul starts talking about down-to-earth, practical things, Paul always goes back to some sort of ultimate reality in the Godhead to show why it's true. In other words, Paul's approach is to teach them how to think about practical application. That he doesn't just say, oh, you need to have unity because it's good. You know, that's how pagans think. You get out there and say, well, we ought to have peace. Why? Well, it's a good thing. Well, you don't know the first thing about why there isn't peace, so you can't ever get to real peace. You ever think about that? You get out there with people who don't understand war and think have all this problem with why we're in Iraq or, or the fact that there's war in general and all the peacenik hippies that marched against Vietnam, and, and they always act as if peace is some sort of universal absolute. I love it. Most of them are postmodern. They don't believe in absolutes, so what gives them the right to protest? You have, a, a, you have to understand why there's not peace, which has to do with sin, before you can understand what you have to do to have peace. There's war because people are sinners. Well, here Paul starts talking about why you have personal conflicts. Same reason. People are sinners. How do you get past this? Well, there has to be humility. You have to think a certain way. You have to, once again, apply the principle of 
Revelation 12.2, and you have to exchange that human viewpoint, pagan, self-centered, arrogant garbage that's in your mind that you're so proud of that you think is common sense, and you have to flush it and replace it with divine viewpoint. And so here's what Paul is saying, very practical, down-to-earth exhortation. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, verse 3, but in lowliness of mind, which has to do with humility, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, that's great to say that, isn't that wonderful? We shouldn't be selfish. We should just all get along together, and we should think that each other is more valuable than ourselves. I mean, this is real self-esteem. This isn't that garbage they they teach out of psychobabble. But how do you get there? So Paul says, you gives the next command in verse 5, let this mind or let this thinking be in you which was in Christ Jesus. In other words, you can't get there unless you're thinking the same way Jesus Christ thought. This is a starting point. If you want to understand anything about humility, if you want to understand anything about getting along with people, if you want to understand anything about being not being selfish, real, genuine, biblical unity then it starts in verse 5. Let this thinking be in you which was in Christ Jesus. And verses 6 through 8 describe the thinking that was in Christ. And this is some of the most difficult material to work our way through in the New Testament. He says that Christ Jesus is the exemplar of what genuine humility is all about. So, As is typical of Paul, he immediately jumps into what most modern Americans would call just an abstract theological discussion. But wait a minute, I want to be practical. Well, this is practical because if you don't understand the hypostatic union and if you don't understand the dynamics of the kenosis and if you don't understand the issues related to the impeccability of Jesus Christ, you're never going to understand how you're going to grow up and mature as a believer. Let's um, just. I, I, we're going to do some detailed exegesis on this passage as we as we go through it. But I want to start with just a couple of observations. First of all, in verse five, it's a command. This is a mandate. This isn't an option for you as a believer. If you want to grow and mature as a believer, then you have to have this thinking in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now we get into verse six. Who, although he existed. In the form of God. I just want to hit some superficial exegesis this morning. Form of God is the Greek word morphe, M-O-R-P-H-E. And it has to do with the essence of God. We'll get into more details on this as we, as we go through it. I just want to, um, orient you a little bit this morning. So although he existed in the form or the essence of God, what's that? He's fully God. He's undiminished deity. He existed. This is, this is past tense. This is dealing with the fact that in eternity past, he had a certain existence. This is uparkon, which is the, which is an existential verb similar to a me, and it's in a, it's a present active participle form here. It's in a relative clause, so it's who, who 
existed, and it's talking about describing the mode of his existence in eternity past, who, although he existed in eternity past, it's a part, concessive participle here, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. He did not, uh, what, what, this is a reference to Adam in the garden. Adam was tempted if you eat the fruit, you'll be like God. Satan said, that's, that's why God doesn't want you to eat the fruit. You'll be like him. So what do they do? Well, we want to be like God. So they grabbed the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In contrast to Adam, who wasn't God but wanted to be like God, Jesus, who is God, doesn't hold on to it in the sense that he is not asserting his privilege to utilize all of the attributes of his deity. That's the point. Although he existed in the form of God, and as a as a present participle, that would indicate continuous existence. Although he was continually existing in the form of God, did not regard equality a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now, there's an, that's that word kanao, and we're going to have to spend a lot of time understanding what does that mean exactly. And it doesn't mean that he gives up his deity. It doesn't mean that it's not there. But it, what it does mean is that he relinquishes the utilization of his deity in order to solve the problems he faces in life. Now, you may have heard in a different definition. I've used other definitions. Sometimes this is defined as the, he restricts the independent use of his attributes. Now, think about that a minute. Did God the Son, who is eternally one with the Father, ever utilize his attributes independently of the Father? No, he didn't. So it really doesn't make sense to say that he willingly restricted the independent use of his attributes because he never utilized them independently of the Father. What he's doing is he is restricting the use of his attributes to solve the problems he faces in his humanity. Now, that's crucial. See, the way most of us think about Jesus is, well, of course Jesus didn't have any problem being tempted by such and so. He was God. Well, you just lost the whole significance of the incarnation if you do that. I mean, in terms of sanctification. You, you've just said that his life has no significance for you. The point is that Jesus had, he had access to all of his divine attributes, but he restricted access to those attributes will, willingly so that he handled human problems through the same resources that God has given you to handle your problems and to demonstrate that we can do it, that God's given us the, the resources to do it. So emptying himself has to do with that restriction of access to those attributes. And he took on the form, and this is a, this is a different word here, the form, or excuse me, it's the same word here, the form of a servant, receiving the form of a servant. Again, it's morphe, indicating the the essence of a servant. In Jesus' life, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's in the like. He became in the likeness of man, and was found in the. And was he came in the form of bondservant, found in the likeness of man, 
and was found in discovered to be in the uh, appearance as a man. That is true humanity, the first part of verse 8. And then it says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, sometimes computers are great, but in the process of inserting the Greek text in my notes, it inserted the Greek text of 2.7 under the English of 2.8. So i got to look at the Greek text here just a minute. 2.7, Philippians 2.7. Okay, Philippians 2.8. Ganominos, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Just wanted to check the form on that. And that is a part, present active participle of ginomai. Now, I, I want you to look at something here. When it says he became obedient... When the Greek uses this verb, ginomai, G-I-N-O-M-A-I, that indicates a process. If you say you are something, that's, that's, that's what you are right now. That's, a, that's status. If you become something, that's process. Jesus became obedient. Now, you're sitting out there thinking, well, wait a minute. He's the incarnate second person of the Trinity. He is without sin. What do you mean he became obedient? See, this is talking about his humanity. This isn't talking about his deity. His deity is obedient. But in his humanity, Jesus Christ had to become obedient. This is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting for him, talking about God the Father, it was fitting for him, God the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, first of all, we have to clarify this translation uh, perfect. This is the Greek verb teleao. And teleao means to bring to maturity. It's consistently translated in many versions to perfect. But when you think of perfection, you think of something that's flawless, something that, that doesn't have sin. And see, that communicates to people that Jesus somehow had to be brought from imperfection to perfection. But that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about the fact that he had to be matured. So it was fitting for God the Father... In bringing many sons, that's you and me, in bringing us to glory, getting us ready for eternity, he had to mature the author of their salvation through suffering. The implication of this is that in order for you to be able to reach spiritual maturity and to prepare you for eternity, not just in terms of getting there, but in terms of capacity for functioning there, Our Lord Jesus Christ had to go through a process of spiritual growth. 
that entailed surmounting suffering. And he couldn't do it by relying on his deity. That would blow the whole thing. Of course he could handle the suffering through relying on his deity. That's not the point. The point is he handles it in his humanity, dependent upon the same resources that God's given you and me. And we're not talking about pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps kind of resources. Go out and do these five good things, and, and if you can do them, then you're growing up as a believer. That's how it's presented with mo- in most congregations. See, the spiritual life is a supernatural way of life. You can't do it on your own. That's one of the principles that comes across in the Old Testament is they don't have the Holy Spirit and their failures. All they have is the faith rest drill, just trusting God. But they don't get very far. So we get a whole new scenario in the church age where you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and you have the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we studied that where it's when you're in fellowship, God the Holy Spirit fills you with the Word of God that you've studied and learned. And it is through the Word of God that's in your soul and the application of the Word of God in your soul that the Holy Spirit uses that to produce growth in you. This is a metabolic process that goes on just like when you eat food. Even if you're a nutritionist or dietitian, or even if you've got your Ph.D. in, in uh, uh, biology and understand all of the chemical processes, how do you take that piece of dead animal flesh that you barbecued last night and convert that into sugar and into muscle mass and into energy? You don't have anything to do with it after you swallow it. I mean, you chew it up. And you swallow it. At that point, your volition ends. God has built into your body certain physical dynamics that digest the food, break it down uh, chemically, and then distribute it to all the cells in your body. And that keeps you healthy and keeps you strong, gives you energy, and all the other things that go with life. And then you're able to apply that energy as you go about various things in life. Well, the same thing is true in the Christian life. You take in the Word of God. You study it. Under the filling of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that is the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit is analogous to that metabolic process God built into your physical body to break down the food and to produce growth. It's imperceptible. You watch your kids. You you live with your kids. You know what this is like. And if you don't have kids, you experienced it yourself. You don't see them grow necessarily every day. But then all of a sudden, at the end of the year, you look down and you realize that their their shoes don't fit, and they went from a size eight to a size eleven. Or you look suddenly, you look at their shirt and it's a little tight, and you realize they've gone from. They've jumped three sizes in the last month. But you didn't see that every day, but all of a sudden you see the, the, the result of it. And the same thing is true in the Christian life. You take in the Word of God. You make it a priority under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. Then over a period of time, you begin to realize that, that as you've been applying it, God, the Holy Spirit, is using that to produce spiritual growth. And you realize, wow, there was some growth that took place here. That spiritual life was pioneered by Jesus Christ at the first advent in the hypostatic union. And this is indicated in Philippians 2, 9, by the verb uh, became, 
and it's indicated in Hebrews 2.10. Now, Hebrews 2.10 says that, that the author of our salvation was matured through sufferings. Now, if we go back to Philippians 2.9, Or 2.8, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What's the consequence of that? The consequence of that is that Jesus Christ received a reward, his personal exaltation. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. This is his reward. This is the same thing that is true for us, that if we go through this same process, follow him in his, uh, as he pioneered the spiritual life, then the result of that is that we too will be rewarded. Verses 9 through 11 of Philippians 2 focuses on that reward, that Jesus Christ is exalted, he ascended to heaven, he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, where he is running the universe. He's been elevated above all the angels, all the principalities and powers, and he reigns over all things, and eventually all men, those in heaven and those in hell, will recognize his authority and his sovereignty, and willingly or unwillingly, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus, those who are in heaven and on earth and those who are uh, under the earth. Now, this gets us into a basic orientation to the hypostatic union. So what does the hypostatic union mean? Okay, well, I've explained so far is just the implication, which is point number three. Let's go to point number four. Point number four. What does the hypostatic union mean? And here I want to break it down into just five basic elements of the definition. First element, he was always eternally undiminished deity. He was fully God. He was never less than God. Jesus Christ has always been God from all eternity. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was Imperfect tense of a me continually existed as God. He was always God. There never was a time when Jesus Christ didn't exist. That's the Arian heresy that sometime in eternity past God created him. So he's undiminished deity. He was never less than God. In the hypostatic union, he is also fully human. He had true humanity. He is born of a virgin, but he is not something other than human. He's not a Klingon. You know, he's not a Wookiee until who watches science fiction and who doesn't. You know, he is a human being. He is not something other. He is fully God. He's not an angel. He is fully human. He is both. We have seen this again and again the last several months as we've gone through all the scriptures on his humanity and his deity. Third thing that we see in the scripture is that his undiminished deity and full humanity were united into one person forever. There's that unity that occurred at the virgin birth. So what we have here is two natures combined in one person, but there's still only one person, but he has two distinct and separate natures or essences. And now these two natures can never again be separated. They've been united into one person forever. The fourth element of the definition 
that the product of this person becomes the unique person in all of human history. He's the unique person of the universe. He is also, another term used to describe this, is the theanthropic person, from theos, meaning God, and anthropos, meaning man. He is the theanthropic person, fully God and fully man. Also, we call him the God-man. And then finally, E, this is the great mystery that's addressed in Colossians 2, verses 2 through 3, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. There, there we read that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God. See, we can know this. We can understand this. It moves beyond a simple Sunday school perception. But there is a lot about this we can understand. We will not understand it exhaustively, but you can understand it in a lot more detail than you realize. To the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, that's just our introduction to the hypostatic union and understanding these issues. Next time, we still have much more to cover in terms of how this was put together in the early church. We're going to get into the historical development, understand some things about why they said what they said at Nicaea and at the subsequent um, councils leading up to the Council of Chalcedon. We have to look at this whole element of the the uh, impeccability of Jesus Christ. What do we mean that he was impeccable, that he had no sin? What does it mean when the Scripture says that he was tempted in all areas as we are, yet without sin? How can God be tempted? Well, he can't. But in the humanity, he could. And this has to do with how you handle problems and temptations in your life. So at the risk of sounding re- redundant here, it may seem abstract at times, but that's just new information. But the implication is, if you're going to understand humility, if you're going to understand your own sanctification, then you have to understand the dynamics of the hypostatic union with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to be pushed and pressed into new dimensions of thought about our Savior, to realize who he was and who he is and all that is related to his His person. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Salvation is not based on who you are or what you've done. It's not based on impressing God with your sincerity. It's not based on being involved in some sort of ritual. It's based on faith alone and Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study today. Pray that you would challenge us with them, that we might press on to the high calling of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might emulate him, that we might be matured as he was matured, that we might glorify you in time and in eternity. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.